Thank you so much for joining us today on a special edition of the Mongo Spaces. We are very privileged to have two speakers from EFG Hams. So one of our speakers is uh, Silha Rasugu, who is Associate VP Utilities Telcom Oil and Gas Research. And the other one is Kato Mukuru, who's uh, Head of Frontier Markets Research at EFG Hams. We are very, very lucky to have both of them today so that as we look to have a discussion around banks and mobile money, we seek to understand how banks have performed in 2021. We are going to be focused on the Kenyan markets, of course, uh, but also with comparison on how the rest of Africa and Middle Eastern uh, banks have been doing in 2021 and the outlook for 2022. Silha, can you say hi? Hello. Welcome, Silha. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at EFG? Sure. A bit about myself. Just been... Working in capital markets, primarily as an analyst doing research for mostly telcos, energy stocks, and some of the utilities across East Africa and Africa as a whole. So that's my role at EFG, ideally. All right. Kato is here also. Kato, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Okay. My name is Kato Mukuru, and I'm from uh, Uganda. I've been in investment banking for 30 years, covering Africa for most of that. I'm head of frontier research at EFG Hermes. With the number one frontier investment bank. My focus has historically been on, on banks and financial institutions. But as the head of team, of course, I do get to look at other sectors. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on today with you. Great. Maybe you can start with an easy question. What does it take to be an analyst uh, at EFG and what has been your journey so far? Maybe you can start with Kato and then Silha. To be an analyst, one has to be uh, very hardworking, diligent. One has to be somebody who questions almost everything. Because the heart of the matter is always never to take anything at its face value. It's always to do that extra work to try and understand why things are the way they are and communicate why you think this either makes sense or doesn't for the market. So you need to have a very inquisitive mind. You need to be open-minded. You need to be quick. You need to have a lot of stamina because there is a lot of work to be done between building the model, writing the research, reaching out to clients, supporting sales, supporting trading. There's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun if you're naturally inclined in, in that direction. Sila, over to you now. Thank you. I'll try not repeat all that Kato has said, but I think he's captured uh, a good chunk of it. I would say, yeah, you have to be quite passionate about the companies or sectors you're looking at. Naturally curious, sometimes or most times naturally skeptic and have sort of very clear way of communicating because at the end of it your your knowledge is really worthless if you can't share it with the world the idea of distinguishing between a good business and and a good stock investment understanding how businesses make money and being able to break that down into a simple but in-depth investment thesis I like that fact about curiosity and maybe leveraging your natural curiosities to actually be an analyst in the area that you like. The good thing about securities research and analysis, mostly it allows you to venture into those aspects of research that you want. So if you're more interested in telecom, you can venture into being an analyst in telecom. And let's say you're interested in uh, industrials, you can actually be an analyst in industrials. If you're more interested in health tech, you can focus on that. But today, I think our focus is more banks and mobile money. And maybe it's something we should have started with. Maybe Katri can tell us a little bit about EFG and what EFG does as an institution. EFG, like all investment banks, are intermediaries. We are intermediaries between investors and the listed companies themselves. And even on the private sector, we do work through our IB and M&A teams and ECM teams, which is equity capital markets. 
and uh, investment banking teams to help companies raise monies. So at the heart of it, what we are really are intermediaries. So we try to bridge the gap between those who need capital and those who have capital and want to generate a, a strong return on their capital. That's the real heart of what we do. Silva, maybe you can break it down a bit further and say which segment of the market you're operating in. Are you high net worth, maybe middle income? We do all of the above. And also, maybe Silva, you can add on geographical spread, where you're operational and which areas of the continent. From a client perspective, it's very broad-based, both institutional and retail investors. So you and I, as well as pension funds or insurance companies, um, et cetera. From a geographical standpoint, it's predominantly frontier emerging markets. So that will include sub-Saharan Africa, where we're present in Kenya, Nigeria, primarily as well as um, Egypt and trading Morocco, Ghana, ideally all the major capital markets in Africa. This is extended into Asia through Vietnam, Bangladesh and Pakistan. And really where the business started and where it's strongest from a market share perspective is the Middle East and greater from Saudi to, to Egypt. And Egypt is actually where our head office is in Cairo. So the geographical coverage is pretty wide. I would say frontier emerging markets are, are really our focus and expertise. All right, great. Now we can get started on Qatar a little bit. Maybe you can give us a bit of perspective on generally how banks are, are doing uh, across the continent and maybe specifically uh, your high level, maybe bird's eye view of uh, the continent's banks and how they're doing. And maybe in the, in the same space, you can also map for, out for us. We are the major players across the continent in terms of the banks that you follow. How, how banks are doing, that's a very, very big subject in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, if you actually take a starting point, one of the key things we look at is the extent to which bank total assets represent the GDP of a country. What we try and try and figure out is what is happening with the level of bankerization across sub-Saharan Africa. And what you will find is that over the last 10 years, we actually haven't gone that far. We've actually been very, very flat and still remain well below that 100% mark, which is where you really want to cross over if you want to become at least an EM country. So you would need to have banking assets that are at least 100% of GDP. You'll find that in most of our countries, we're, we're still sub-80, and in some instances, as low as 30% in terms of uh, bankerization. So that tells you there's still tremendous scope for growth across sub-Saharan Africa. But there have been bright spots. I mean, clearly, uh, a bright spot has been most recently Equity Bank, which has come a very long way through the acquisitions in the DRC and has posted very strong numbers today. And in, in line with what we're seeing in Kenya, Kenya has had much more success developing retail banking, SME banking, and even corporate banking than we see generally in Western Africa or in Central Africa. And I, th I think that's testament to the very strong local banks that have been built in Kenya, just like you've seen in, in Nigeria, who actually made the push to bank retail customers and have really been at the lead in Africa in doing so. Overall, we still have a very long way to go, but I think in Kenya, we've made some very, very good strides and we have some very, very good banks here that should be commended. Great. Now, back to Sil. Can you tell us a little bit, maybe map out for us the major players in terms of uh, mobile money across the continent and what you've seen in terms of trends and your high-level view of that? Sure. So mobile money across the continent, I think there's 
two predominant schools of thought where you have telco-led models for mobile money penetration. Kenya is a classic example led by Safaricom through M-Pesa since 2007. And as regulations sort of caught up with the industry, you have a more aware central bank. And in some of these jurisdictions, then there's an inclination towards a bank-led model. A good example of this would be in Nigeria, where banks got a good um, head start in terms of building the necessary ecosystem to, to lead as mobile money service providers. But overall, those are the two big sort of schools of thought. Then you have pure fintech sort of players. And these could fall into several subcategories, such as digital lenders or payment companies or remittance kind of businesses that facilitate international money transfer. And I think the third sort of broad categorization of the players in the space would be the infrastructure providers. This could be payment APIs or aggregators that facilitate the mobile money value chain. From a trend perspective, what's really exciting is the natural evolution of mobile money ecosystems. For most of these businesses, you start as a very basic money transfer service where you have cash in, cash out, and you're able to move money from urban to rural areas within a specific country or economy. The evolution we've seen moving more into payments and then enabling value-add services like credit or international money transfer. And where we see the next big shift is really a combination of data penetration, smartphone penetration that allows mobile money to move from USSD to more app-based kind of services. And through this transition, we're ex- likely to see much more integration of both consumer and business solutions as part of the extension of mobile money ecosystems. And we really see the distinguishing factor between some of these service providers is shown by how well they're prepared for this next um, phase of evolution as well. I, I thought you'd name name Silha. Uh, give me some names. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A lot of these providers, let's use the telcos, uh, for example, are clearly at different stages of this cycle. Nigeria, to start with, is right at the beginning where you have payment service bank regulations very recently approved, and you have not really seen wide-scale launch or rather commercial launch of a mobile wallet through the telcos. Despite having close to 70 million subscribers, the potential for scale there could be enormous, but they are more or less in the early stage of, of mobile money development. Then you have a country like Ghana, um, MTN Ghana, for example, a successful launch similar to Safaricom in Kenya. They have a very fast mover advantage. And where they are is more in the product uh, development phase where you're expanding the service offering from cash in, cash out and moving more into merchant payments, bill payments, and also progressing in terms of smartphone penetration. And I would say that the most advanced of the mobile money uh, wallets we look at would be M-Pesa, who've made that uh, transition from a product perspective and have also introduced the super app which then allows you to become uh, a viable uh, platform provider where third-party service providers can easily integrate um, with the app and offer 
multiple solutions to both your enterprise and customer businesses. If I could add to that, in addition to the two telcos you've named, you've also got Orange Money, which is owned by Sonatel, which has done an amazing job of building a, a great franchise across Western Africa. You also have obviously Airtel Money. And then I would say, don't forget the banks. When you talk about mobile money, it's not just about the telcos. All the banks have mobile banking apps or mobile banking payment systems which have allowed for people to make instant payments, particularly in Nigeria. Nigeria actually is very impressive because you can do instant payment on your mobile to mobile with a bank, USSD as well, because of the NIPS payment system that they have. So it's not just about the telcos like Impesa and MTN, and, but also the banks and particularly West African banks. All right, Suit. Uh, I see you had, you had a question. Maybe you want to jump yeah, in? Yeah, I was going to put Silla on the spot there. We've got banks as stakeholders, and then you have MNOs as stakeholders. What is the role of policy in, in influencing the way digital money moves in some of the markets in Africa? For a long time, historically, policy or policymakers were catching up to, to innovation. But in a sense, um, that is starting to shift. I actually think policymakers are a very key determining factor to the successful development of an ecosystem at this time. They have the power to regulate the products and services you could provide. They have power to sort of determine cost of accessing the necessary infrastructure. And what is most, I guess, clear to see is that even when trying to build a multi-geographical kind of platform, that's the biggest pain to sort of cross is that you also have different regulatory structures across a lot of these African markets. So at this time, regulators have sort of supported this innovation, but they also play a critical role in ensuring that this kind of development is not sort of slowed down or or broken down through excess regulation or taxes, especially. Because in as much as we've come so far, I believe it's still in a growth discovery and development stage Mm -hmm. in its economic cycle. So policy is everything at this time. Perhaps Kato has something to add. On policy, the regulator is king, especially coming from a banking perspective like mine. Regulator is always king. The regulator has to decide what's the end game with all of this. The end game is financial inclusion. And the end game is frictionless transactions. You want to make transactions as cheap as possible and as easy as possible for the greater masses. So regulation is going to be the, the driving force towards that end goal. Whether you come from it from the telco side uh, and allow them to participate in financial services, or you come from the banking side and encourage them to align or JV with telcos, the end result must be the same. But the only person, the only entity that can get a country to that end result is the regulator. And it's very dependent on what the entity views as the best way to get there and maintain financial stability. So the regulator is king. So you can keep going. Cut a follow-on question. So we've seen different flavors of regulation. You look at in the Kenyan case with M-Pesa, and M-Pesa has been the darling of mobile money, at least in Africa, actually worldwide for a very long time, although there's lots more innovation that's happening now. But you look at the early days of M-Pesa, it was kind of loosely regulated. They had a supervisory committee between the banking regulator and the telco regulator, and you know, they're given this safe space or sandbox to, to innovate. 
And you look at the Nigerian example where the regulators have come in and actually built the rails to enable both banks and telcos and startups to innovate. Is there like a, a recipe or playbook for this or what should different countries do? These are two very different uh, examples. One very kind of well-defined and another one was very loose. I, I think ultimately, if you had asked me which is the best way of doing it, it's probably a hybrid. When I look at Impesa, I can't help but be a banks analyst and worry about the financial stability of the country. Because at the end of the day, your accounts are sat in escrow. There's no deposit insurance against your accounts. You're totally reliant on the provider actually coming clean or good on you in case of any fraud or et cetera. And also, I prefer systems where there is institutional structure around some form of regulation. So that's always worried me. But at the same time, I understood the brilliance of allowing it to just grow because it allowed for financial institutions to tap into the distribution infrastructure that Safaricom had. Financial institutions, at the end of the day, are as successful as their distribution platforms. So that was the brilliance of it. In Nigeria, I think the approach has been far more structured. And I think in Nigeria, the universal payment system that was driven by the central banks, the NIPS payment system, they're open, they're going to be, so it's open architecture for both the telcos and the banks. So by allowing now the PSBs to tap into that payment platform, I think we're going to see a massive explosion in financial inclusion in Nigeria. So the end result will get there. It just got there a lot slower. So no one really knows at the end of the day who had the right, best, uh, or worst way to do it. But I think both have their pros and cons. But the reality is you just can't get away from mobile banking. And mobile banking, meaning there's going to be some in-between between what you know as a traditional bank and what you know as a traditional mobile institution coming together and, and, and bringing about, which is the most important thing to me anyway, is financial inclusion and allowing people to make frictionless payments. Payments must be zero cost ultimately. That's when we're going to have real financial inclusion. At zero cost, then uh, how will banks make money and these institutions that are players in this field? Very simple. So we wrote a note right now looking at Impesa uh, versus another company called Caspi. Caspi is the fintech. Well, it started off as a bank, but developed into a fintech in Kazakhstan. They have done an unbelievable job of digital bank. Right now, if you do a P2P payment, it costs zero. Why? Because he's going to make money by taking risk. So he's making money by lending, by providing credit to his customers. He's making money by taking their deposits and then reinvesting those deposits in securities. So those are the two traditional ways. And then he's also selling uh, wealth management and insurance products on top of that. So there's ample room to make money by taking on risk, which is what banks are supposed to do. Banks are supposed to be a part of providing credit to the system. And I think if you allow these digital or fintech companies to evolve um, along the lines of regulated deposit-taking institutions, they can make tons of money, much more money than the traditional bank. I think you're hitting on a, on a spot of bother locally, at least in the banks, where most banks are choosing uh, to increase a lot of their non-funded income so that they charge a lot for costs. There's been a lot of complaints now in Kenya about the fact that some of the transactions on bank to mobile and mobile to bank have been zero rated, like the, the zero cost 
Uh, it's interesting that you have that kind of a proposition. So what would you tell the local banks that are more intent on maybe having those fees back? Would you prefer that they focus more on taking on risk by lending this money to loading them exactly. up on government securities? Or- exactly. If I had a voice with the regulator here, I'd, I would walk towards as low a commission infrastructure as possible. We can't be charging people to move their own money. It makes no sense. Why is it only in Africa where someone can tell me that just because I move my money from my dollar account to my shilling account, I need to pay him? What for? He didn't do anything. I'm happy to pay you if you're giving me an investment or wealth management structured product where I can make money in the future and we can both share in that. No problem. But not to move my own money. To me, I just think the whole thing is borderline criminal. But we, as people who are customers of banks and we who are an industry, need to shout and need to let people know that we, we cannot be happy with this. There's, there's no reason why you can make money just by sending, give me credit. I'll pay you your interest rate. And now with the risk-based models, you can tell me what type of risk rate I am. And if I have to pay more because I have been delinquent in the past, then so be it. I'll pay. But don't tell me to pay to my own money. If I may add to that, so in a way, your P2P transfers, your cash-in transactions become an inevitable part of the ecosystem to work. So in Kenya's example, when you have free bank to wallet or wallet to bank, what ideally that means is that any M-Pesa agent of the 200 plus thousand agents they have are ideally collection points for bank deposits. Rather than focusing on reinstating those fees, I think the pressure should be on innovating around that deposit. So once that money comes in, what can I offer you as a bank customer? And you have that data. You can see how many of your deposits are coming via M-Pesa or through an M-Pesa deposit and then uh, wallet to bank transaction. I think a lot more focus should be on innovating um, around the customer, given the frictionless transactions, as opposed to reinstating the fees. And so when we think about you know, the evolution of these platforms, whether it's a bank wallet or a telco wallet, the, the idea is to continue in offering much more value-added solutions that you can then monetize because P2P and cash-in is growing and is a consistent part of the ecosystem. And so I think value-added services, which requires a lot of understanding of your customer and providing more innovative ways for them to then utilize the money in the wallet in a way that you can monitor. That's a good segue also to talk a little bit about a common question. How can banks make such huge profits in the midst of a pandemic? Maybe, uh, Kato, you can give us a little bit of perspectives. How do banks make money and how come they're making a lot of money in this pandemic? And also maybe talk about the role of provisions in, in these kind of situations. This profit season is really about a low base. It's a base effect. So when you are seeing the big profit growth by the banks, I think... From our coverage universe, the banks have averaged about 83% year-on-year growth. But that's because last year was such a poor year, and this year they've had the benefit of slightly wider margins and a lot lower uh, risk charge. That's provisions they were making against their loan books. So they took a lot of provisions last year that drained the, brought the profits down. But this year they're, they're benefiting from not having to make those provisions again. So it's not because in most instances that the loan books are growing very strongly. It's more a reflection of the poor previous year. 
I think for the uninitiated, maybe you can give us perspective on why do banks make provisions and why is its movement up and down significant for a bank's profit? Okay, when you write a loan to a customer, that's on your asset side of the balance sheet. So you're, you're providing a credit to somebody. Okay, depending on the performance of that credit or that loan, and it, de- and it depends on the 90 days, typically once a, a payment goes unpaid for 90 days, it's classified as what we'll call a non-performing loan, which I'm sure you'll hear about that, or delinquency. Once it gets to the delinquency stage, the banks then have to start taking provisions against those loans because if we go over 365 days, then the bank's going to have to write off those loans entirely. But in the process, as those loans are, be- are becoming delinquent, the pressure is on the banks to, to take provisions so that if that loan is never really paid, it has to write off that credit. So it has to basically say uh, it's not going to earn any interest income on that credit anymore and therefore has to take the loss, take the hit. So that's what happened last year. Last year was particularly brutal on the banks because they had a lot of delinquencies. This year has improved in general, even though it's mild improvement. Last year was a significant deterioration, which meant significant provisions because you would have to make significant write-downs. I hope that's clear. And uh, maybe across Africa and specifically in Kenya, how is the books for loans uh, looking like for banks? Are they is there an increase in non-performing loans or significant increases to worry us? Or how does it look like across the continent and across the universe? Of- Starting with Kenya, I, I would say, well, this year, if I look at our coverage universe NPL ratio, so that's the non-performing loan ratio, so bad loans to good loans, is 12.4% this year. That's slightly lower than last year, 13.8%. That's an improving outlook, and hence, henceforth, you make a lot less provisions. The rest of Africa really varies. We've seen very good NPL improvements in Tanzania, Uganda, uh, if you look at some of the leading banks there. In Nigeria, we're seeing obviously the reverse, where we're seeing deterioration and pressure on, on asset quality. Although there should be some relief with oil prices having rallied, but then they have other structural problems. So I would say those are the key ones. Obviously, with the war in Ukraine now, we're going to see pressures for those countries that are, that are dependent on wheat imports, like Egypt, for example. There's no doubt about it. So it's, it's a mixed bag, but in, in general, I would say we're far from crisis level. And what are the kind of interesting banks that you're looking at in terms of the asset quality, in terms of their might margins and how they're doing and maybe what key aspects of a bank do you look at when you're analyzing if i give you the balance sheets or the income statement of a bank what do you look at first when you're analyzing these banks funding costs (laughs) let me explain it slowly for those who don't know well how banks work banks are balance sheet driven entities So the most important thing when looking at a bank is its balance sheet. Why is it a balance sheet driven entity? It's because it's a regulated entity. It has to have regulated equity capital. The regulator sets a minimum amount of capital, which you then use to write loans against. Because at the end of the day, why do you need the minimum capital? You need the minimum capital in order to to protect depositors on the one side, but more importantly also to protect investors so that you are able to protect them from any massive deterioration in asset quality. So the first thing you have to look at is the balance sheet, the equity. But then how does a bank really make its money? Why are banks in Africa so profitable? Well, it's because of the cost of funding. So if, if I can get your deposit at zero, 
or one, two, three percent. And then I lend to you at 25 percent. That's where I'm making my money. And why do I need the capital? Because I'm regulated, I need to have a certain percentage of capital backing those loans as per the, as per the regulatory requirements. So the first thing you know about a really good bank, it will always have a lower cost of capital than most of its peers. And some of the best banks, Stambik Uganda, CRDB, NMB, GTB in Nigeria, I mean, KCB Equity, all these guys will have structurally lower funding costs, significantly lower than inflation. So I'm taking your money at below inflation, but then I'm giving it back to you at a significant premium to inflation. That's easy. I make money. I'm done. Now, once I do that, I then need to have very, very good credit risk, right? So it's very important when you're looking at banks to understand how have they written loans throughout cycles. Because it's easy to write a loan when the economy is growing very fast. But when you see a really good bank, he writes good credit risk in a bad environment. And he always will have much lower provisions. Again, we go back to provisions. And he'll have a structurally higher return on equity. And ultimately, when you want to value a bank, you want to look at how much return on equity can I generate on that bank versus its cost of capital. And that's the multiple you want to pay to book. I hope that's clear. If it's not clear, let me know. Uh, I named some banks, but they're what I call franchise banks in all our markets. Those are really good banks. And they generally tend to do well throughout the cycle. And it's all because of their structurally lower funding costs at the end of the day and better than average credit systems. All right. Now maybe let the listeners know that if you have any questions, you can post below the pinned tweet. Secondly, you can also DM us. And third, you can also request to speak. But I would recommend that you post below the pinned tweet and just send to us your DMs. So we're here to understand banks and mobile money. So I would take a pause on what Kato has said. I will come back to him. Let me know a little bit about one of the moves on the continent about the disaggregation of mobile money, the segments that do with mobile money from the whole in terms of spin-offs, like in, in Uganda, the government requires now that payments be separated from telecom. And then perhaps those will be listed entities going forward. And I know in Kenya, one of the dri major drives has been how do you separate Safaricom from M-Pesa and get good value for M-Pesa uh, in terms of a higher multiple, and then again, maybe unlock more features that can be uh, unlocked if you allow for interoperability. So then on that note, then Silha, what's your perspective on this disaggregation between payments and telco, given that this has been very linked in the past? Thanks. I think it's, it's simply inevitable. We've spoken previously about the natural evolution of these mobile money ecosystems. And part of what influences this transition is access to data. So both mobile phone and broadband penetration, which are consistently growing thanks to the investments that a lot of these telcos are doing across the continent. So as we go more into a digital world with, let's say, north of 70% smartphone or smart device penetration, then you're able to build a, a mobile money ecosystem that's network agnostic. There's less of a competitive advantage being part of a consolidated telco business. And you have KPIs for mobile money that are more divergent from what the telco is trying to do to be successful. And thirdly, you have lower barriers to entry in this world where a sophisticated app developer 
can begin to build a mobile money ecosystem. And therefore, you're competing on innovation, user experience, transaction frequency, um, and share of volume and value of transactions in a country or across multiple geographies. And so long term, these businesses will be very different from a traditional telco. And so to protect or offer shareholders the right valuations for these enterprises, I think it might be an inevitable part of this evolution to start looking at this as segregated businesses. What are the going multiples? Maybe I would explain to some listeners that when you are valuing banks or any institution, you're looking at something called a multiple. So a multiple, it's a quick and dirty way to look at the valuation of a company. So maybe you look at the market cap of a company divided by maybe by revenues, then that would be like price of a sales ratio that's a common one for institutions that are not making money so if you want maybe one that is making profits and you can look at price to earnings ratio still here across the ones which has been spun off what are some of the multiples that you see in terms of valuation uh, some of these entities would fetch if they were standalone yeah so that's an interesting question i think one of the you know challenges we have is a lot of these fintech mobile money businesses are are not publicly traded. In Africa, for example, you have much more action in terms of private transactions um, as opposed to publicly traded enterprises. For the peer comps that we have, you're looking at an enterprise value to revenue multiple of about eight and a half, four similar transactions, although this have been private transactions as opposed to market multiples in terms of a publicly traded company with predominantly fintech or mobile money business. So from a from a private transaction perspective, you know, the range of eight and a half times enterprise value to, to revenue. And perhaps from a PE perspective, uh, price to earnings perspective, when we sort of look at digital market players dominated by businesses like uh, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, and Square, for example, you know, we look at developed market peers trading at an average of about 32 times um, earnings. So just to give some flavor on where the multiples will range, but I can't emphasize enough that a lot of the uh, businesses in this space are are not yet publicly traded. All right. A quick one now to Kato, uh, in terms of across the continent, how banks trading, maybe in terms of valuation and where, what are the interesting ones in terms of the evaluation, given where they are in the stages of maybe growth? So remember, we look at the relationship between return on equity and, and cost of equity. And typically, if your return on equity and your cost of equity are the same, you should be trading at, at least one times book. If your return on equity is a significant premium, depending on how you factor in growth, you should be trading at a premium to book. And most of our banks generally are delivering returns on equities which are above their cost of equity. But you'll find right now, most of them are trading actually below book in sub-Saharan Africa or at book. So we're actually at a very interesting point where we're seeing a lot of value in the banks in Africa, particularly since the banks who make generally make money in a high interest rate environment, and that's going to be off their government security portfolios. So unfortunately, markets haven't paid up for them, but we think that there is scope to own a number of these institutions. And we'd encourage people to take a look at that. We like the Kenyan banks, for example. In Nigeria, we like GT. In Uganda, we like Astambic. In Tanzania, we like CRDB. We like NMB as well. And I think they offer a lot of value. 
Why should investors own banks, Kato? Their portfolio. Why should they put them in their portfolio? Because I think the valuations are very attractive right now. You're getting them below book or at book when they should be trading at probably closer to one and a half to 1.7 times book on their returns. So I think there's scope for the shares to appreciate. Secondly, banks are very good dividend payers, typically paying out in Africa, we're seeing between 30 and 50% of earnings, especially when the return profiles are improving. So I think you can get good capital return in a bank right now in sub-Saharan Africa. And then again, what are the risks in terms of owning banks or so? Your risk is really their asset quality and the provisions again. Are they going to mess it up or not? But on that, I would say that they're very cautious and defensive. Uh, so most of the banks, I think, will, will move slowly uh, and cautiously in the credit growth uh, phase, particularly if interest rates move fast. And so most of the money will be earned on what I call the liability side, which is the spread between the low-cost funding and, and general government interest rates. And remember, government risk is free for a bank, right? There's no capital you need to hold against it. So they can make money just by taking low-cost deposits and investing in government treasuries. All right. At this point, of, I'm adding if one speaker who's going to ask a question. Adobe. Umingo, you can ask your question. Hi. Thanks. Um, a very interesting conversation. But uh, touching on some of the things you've spoken about, on policy, uh, for example, I'm still of the idea that whatever Kenya has followed is the best. I mean, innovation will always precede policy. I do not think it will work as well with the structured ways in which they're pursuing it in West Africa. But also in Kenya, we're seeing a lot of this is still happening in that. Just recently, there's a Century Bank has been bought uh, by a branch, a fintech. And this is, again, an exceptional uh, case whereby we are seeing the Central Bank of Kenya being very progressive in that they are actually doing something that is not typically done. I think banks typically still resting on their laurels. It's not a case whereby now you start thinking about making money from transactional things. That's past. Banks are not necessary. Banking is. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing now the fintechs are cutting up to banks and starting to offer the services that the banks should be providing. As Kato has uh, previously said, I mean, banks need to be a lot more innovative. And uh, perhaps the elephant in the room, or perhaps what we are not speaking about, is how fintechs are really catching up with banks and how banks need to style up. Perhaps your comments on that. I can't argue with you on the fact that I'm enjoying watching the fintechs grow. But I have to ask you a question. If they're so innovative, is the most innovative thing they could do was to try and to become a bank. At the end of the day, they realize that why did they do this? And I'm sure you've spoken to them. They did this because they realized the benefit of the low funding costs that banks have. I don't think it's really about the banks being uh, unable to be innovative. Maybe it's about their, their corporate structures not being nimble enough to, to do a lot of what the fintechs have done on the asset side. And that's why I'm a strong believer in, in the traditional core corporate banking can always be done by somebody else. But the banks, there's nothing to stop the banks from partnering. And, and the banks are really open to it, at least the intelligent ones. They're really ready to partner. They're really ready to work with the telcos. They're really ready to work with the fintechs. And that's the future partnering together. I don't think it's one good, one bad. Just like I also don't agree with Nigeria being bad and Kenya being good. I think every culture, every society has its way to get to the end game. And it's never easy and simple road. So 
As long as we both appreciate what the end game is, I'm happy to walk on both sides. They say every fintech wants to be a bank at the end of the day, and every bank wants to be a fintech. Yes, at the end of the day, they're so innovative, you've got to admit that the most innovative thing they've done is buy a bank. So that means that banks can't be that useless. Omingo, proceed, proceed. Yes, I think I mean, it's the policy angle that perhaps we need to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Given mm-hmm. now they can collect deposits, yeah? You see, all the other uh, digital credit providers are not collecting deposits. Branch perhaps has thought far beyond this. I haven't spoken to them, full disclosure. But yes, again, going back to the basics of banking, lowering your costs of credit. uh, I mean, they probably would not have to have as good a distribution network as the rest of the banks because they're already integrated with M-Pesa and the existing systems. But they are actually merging both the DNA of a traditional microfinance and that of a very agile fintech, which is something uh, that's left to be said for traditional banks. Even those that are trying, the DNA is not the agility that is required perhaps to act in the space. Time will tell. It's not as easy as it sounds. And time will tell. And the, and the moment you take somebody's deposits, this becomes a very serious issue. Not only do you have to pay deposit insurance, But obviously you have the fit and proper requirements for your corporate governance, your legal requirements. There's so much involved in taking somebody's money because it's a very important function of our economic stability. So you're going to find that the things that were making banks less able to move is the regulatory things that are going to also end up weighing on some of these fintechs. It's a lot easier before when there was no regulation. But now there's just too much money out there that could be lost, that that could be attacked by fraud, that we just can't allow it to sit there and pray that nothing happens. We have to do something. And that's going to change how these fintechs operate and maybe change their competitive advantage that they've had till date. Just some additions to that discussion. If you look at the last two transactions, in Kenya by fintechs acquiring banks, the the target specifically has been microfinance banks. One, because obviously the regulation is a little bit loose. Some of these banks are going out for bargains. And if you look at at the deal at the end of last year, Choice uh, Microfinance Bank was acquired by Wakanda. It's a UK domiciled entity linked to to an entrepreneur from Hong Kong who's had uh, a couple of loan apps in Kenya. And the, the, the acquisition there was not the customer because the bank only had one branch. It's licenses. So now, and, and it's that duality is, is like, why do fintechs find operating as a bank more appealing? And why is the central bank accelerating? Because these are back-to-back deals within end of Q4, 2021, yeah. and beginning of Q1, 2022, back-to-back. And you read through the central banks of Kenya, small print is like, oh, we hope that the technology is going to improve the sector and, and whatnot. So either you know the central bank is onto something and saying, hey, this is the way for the market to kind of drive innovation for this segment. Remember, MFBs can't raise a lot of money as a traditional bank. And then they're struggling competing with your APSAs and equities and KCB. So maybe the notion of the thinking there is, okay, can we kind of inject a little bit of capital through entrepreneurs who are willing to risk, but bringing in the right folks with the right technology to be able to shape up the industry for the benefit of the consumers, we hope. I mean, that's the job of the regulators to see what's in the interest of the Kenyan banking system and the Kenyan citizen per se. Yes, I, I agree that it's too early to look uh, and, and, and to qualify whether this is working or not. 
But on the flip side, the regulator also has a role in making sure that the consumers and the users of these banks, people are putting in their deposits to make sure that this money isn't squandered, as we've seen with other banks in the past, and especially the smaller banks who have very interesting ways of doing business. It's a changing world, and we kind of have to look at it day to day. But an interesting duality in the sense that banks want to be as close to fintechs as possible, and fintechs want to be banks because it's in, in the cheap deposits that you're getting the, the margin from, and not from just giving technology willy-nilly, we can do this and that. Yeah, thanks for your contribution. I totally agree with you. It's, it's time will tell. Domingo, are you satisfied? Yes, yes. All right. I don't see many questions from the listeners, so I, I suppose say that we're explaining the concepts very well. Oh, we are uh, maybe flying too high and they can't catch up with us or... I'm hoping it's the former. Some of the questions that I had prepared myself, perhaps maybe you have looked at how banks in Kenya perform near election period. Uh, this is an election year. On top of that, we have the issues in Ukraine and uh, Russia that are also affecting global economies. And then on top of that, we have really not gotten out of the woods yet in terms of COVID. What would be the outlook for banks in such a setting then? The outlook actually is not too bad for Kenya because I think the approval of the risk-based pricing models is a great positive and congratulations to the central bank on that all cards are on the table now right we're going to know exactly why we're being priced the way we're being priced our risk and it's going to allow the banks uh, to take on more risk because they're going to be able to charge more for, for the riskier people and charge less for the good borrowers so i think all in all all of us who have been uh, good borrowers we're going to benefit from those and those who haven't been good borrowers but still need credit, they're going to have a chance to get it. So I think the outlook is definitely towards accelerated credit growth, wider margins. There could be a, a trip on the provisions and costs because of inflation on the cost side and provisions because of the high interest rate environment. But generally, I would expect returns to improve still. The war in uh, Ukraine is, is a global concern, and, and God knows we all hope it can end soon. But the, the direct link and direct exposures, I think, with the exception of wheat and the impact on pricing, aren't catastrophic for Kenya and, and most of sub-Saharan. I'm still very constructive on on the outlook for these banks. I think that they have done well this year and I think they will do even slightly better next year. Of course, you won't get the same big growth numbers, but you'll get a better ROE and you'll get better businesses. And don't forget, Kenyan banks have done a very good job, well, particularly Equity Bank. We have to give credit where credit is due. I've done a very good job of growing outside Kenya, equity in particular in the DRC, where they're the largest bank. They've done that well, and uh, that's always going to support their balance sheet growth as well. You talked earlier about maybe the key things that you want to look at when you're looking at the bank. You're also looking at uh, the balance sheet especially, because that drives a lot of their growth and development. So when you're looking at a bank, what are the key ratios that you pay attention to? I know you've mentioned return on equity, so maybe you can explain to our listeners what that means. And you've mentioned something about price to book, or maybe what that is and what is a low price to book good or bad or something like that. And then maybe you can mention other ratios that you pay attention to. Okay, yeah, your return on equity is your profitability divided by your average equity at year end, at current year end and previous year end. So how much return are you generating on your capital? Again, everything goes back to capital because capital is what you're regulated on. So how much return are you generating off that is the first one you want to look at. Then remember, I really like a cost of funding. You have to look at how much is it costing them to have their deposits and what we call wholesale funding, which is debt funding. And how does that compare to the yields they're generating 
of the investment portfolio's loan books. So that could give you a spread. And it can also give you what we call our net interest margin. So net interest margin is looking at your interest income, so income generated uh, from all assets in which you're earning a yield on the asset side, minus the cost of funding on the liability side, which is basically just your deposits and any debt you have an issue. So that's another very important one. Then you want to look at capital ratios for the banks. And what we look at are Basel II capital ratios, which we call CAR, capital adequacy ratio. That is usually set at a minimum, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but in Kenya, I think it's around 8.4, 8.5% or, or probably higher, actually. And you want to look at the extent to which it's higher than that ratio is very, very important. Then you also want to look at leverage. And one of the key ways of looking at leverage is to what extent uh, are your loans covered by your deposits? So do you have more deposits than loans? Because that's where you get generate your liquidity. Because remember, a bank uses its customers' deposits to, to actually write the loans. The capital just backs the risk of default against any loans. And so it's very important to look at the ratio of loans to deposits. And typically, you want to own a bank that has a very low loan-to-deposit ratio. If it's above 100%, it gets worrying because that means it's reliant on its own capital and, and debt funding in order to write new business. And cost-to-income ratio, obviously, on the P&L side is obviously very important. And then the last one is provisions. Again, we call it the risk charge. So we look at provisions divided by gross loans. That's a very important ratio as well. Good stuff. Looking at all these ratios then, so there is a requirement, as you say, like from the central bank in terms of these banks retaining a bit of the capital they have on board. Those are adjusted from time to time in some of these countries. So perhaps what are your observations across the continent in terms of how much the regulators require some of these banks read? And if you have looked at some of the banks which have failed, are there some characteristics that you've noted that investors can watch out for? I know a lot of Kenyans are scarred with some of the banks that have failed, like um, Chase Bank and all. Uh, any observations you've made on that? So on, on capital ratios, I would say we're very, very conservative in sub-Saharan Africa, to be very honest with you. Most of our regulators are already on what we call Basel II, and they have very high capital requirements and, and capital buffers for banks because they operate in what they recognize as being challenging environments. It's not easy writing risk in our countries. And our regulators are very good and understand that. I, I really am very impressed by how well they are generally error on, on the conservative side. A lot of people say sometimes that that's a painful <laughs> system to operate in, but it does help in the end. On bank runs, although banks are regulated and have minimum capital ratios, a bank can survive perfectly below the minimum capital ratio as long as it has liquidity. The one thing that kills a bank is when one depositor goes to the bank, asks for his money, and the bank says he cannot give it. That's the point at which a bank dies. And that's why I always say it's very important to make sure that you're looking at those liquidity ratios. Because at the essence, what's a bank doing? A bank is taking somebody's deposit, and then he has minimum levels which he has to retain, which will differ depending on the regulator, right? And that's what we call your cash reserve ratio, which you have to keep so that you can keep giving people their cash back. But then... And on top of that, the more conservative banks will always build in a big buffer. 
to make sure that every time I walk into the bank and I have a, a customer that wants his money, I should be able to give him his money. The moment that doesn't happen, and it can start with as low as $100 by one person, he tells the next person, the next person hears this, and everybody runs and says, I got to get my money out while I still can. That's the problem. That's when you get a bank run. So it's very, very important to watch out and make sure that the banks you're investing in have ample liquidity to make sure there's never that doubt that one can take out his money when he wants it. Banks play such a critical role in society that I think people notice them mostly when they do really badly or really well. Most of the time, you don't really notice them. Domingo. I'll just take us back again to the issue of policy and the, perhaps uh, the categorization of these institutions. Kato, you also mentioned again how we need to give credit rates. I'll just uh, use some pun on this year's giving credit to people who deserve. We've seen the question you've raised on uh, risk-based financing, that equity is doing this or uh, has got permission to do this. And perhaps what I read on this was that they'll be categorizing the individuals perhaps based on being an SME, an individual, or whatever kind of categorization they previously had. Uh, but we've seen, for example, even uh, likes of Impesa, they'll give you perhaps some rebit on the fee they charge if you pay your Fuliza or is it Amshari loan earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. fintechs are already doing these kinds of things without really needing to be in that regulated space where you have to be told, now you can do this, you can get this at this percentage. I mean, of course, the rates that they're giving uh, for Lizat and uh, all these other products are perhaps, I mean, out of this world exorbitant, and I don't know whether they fall into this regulation. But yeah, again, mm-hmm. just coming back to this point whereby being in that gray area where you're not fully regulated where you are regulated i think is a sweet sweet spot for banking and maybe i can finish by saying uh, banking is necessary i i, I think i kind of disagree because look it helps everybody to understand so the central bank is not going to be regulating rates anymore right central bank is going to be regulating your risk pricing models and that's going to be true for everybody including your fintechs which is good because they're going to basically say is there a basis upon which this makes sense? What's, what's your real cost of serve? Why are you charging so much more if it isn't such a big problem? Maybe you can charge 25% a month because honestly, your delinquencies are 20 or 40%. Maybe that's okay. But then you have to go to the central bank and say to the central bank, this is why. And having that oversight is healthy. It's good. It's a safety net. I'm just worried that you then expose yourself to this monstrous risk that nobody knows until it's too late and can't be fixed. I think, yes, people should be allowed to be entrepreneurs, people should be allowed to grow, but having a structure, not telling people what to do, but having a structure that says, look, you're going to have to have a proper board and I'm going to have to see that these people are fit and proper. You have to have some kind of minimum level of corporate governance, which is good for you. You need to have some minimum levels maybe of diversity. Whatever the criteria are, all those things are good for you. It's not bad. It's not going to stop you from being an entrepreneur. I don't see many questions coming through, so I think I'll keep asking my questions. We've been hearing a lot about risk-based lending, and especially in Kenya, there are negotiations between the banks and the regulator in terms of reintroducing risk-based lending. What exactly is risk-based lending, Kato and maybe Silha? When I first when I first started looking at banks in Sub-Saharan Africa, I was really amazed because most banks were pricing their products based on their competitors. 
So you would go to a bank and you wanted a loan, they would say 18%. Then you would say, no, no, the bank next door is offering me 17 There was not much of an analysis beyond that. So that was the very, very basics, and that's 20 years ago. But now, hopefully, the banks have been able to segregate their customer base and say, are you a retail customer, SME, corporate customer? Once you're, you're segregated, then they've been able to put you in different risk categories. Are you low, high, medium, et cetera, et cetera, depending on the bank? And so the, the, the risk-based pricing model looks at that and says, okay, this is what a low-risk client who is very liquid, has no debt, has always been a great payer, would charge. And then relative to that, how much must I charge in addition? But each time I move up the risk curve. It, it's, it's a far more detailed model, but that's the essence of it. The essence of it is price relative to the risk of the individual, not just because somebody else next door thinks that they can give them a loan for 17%. So you actually have to have a structured, clear thought process on what that risk is that you're taking on with that individual customer and how much you need to be compensated for taking that risk for probability of default is very important example. For example, in these models, how likely do we think a default is? Okay, so let's price for that, right? What's the cost of actually making the loan possible, the paperwork, back office costs, associated costs? So all that has to be factored in to be able to be determine what interest rate you actually end up going to pay. And that's the beauty of the risk-based pricing model. I come back to Silha now. Uh, Silha, could you tell me a few of the trends that you're seeing in terms of fintech mobile money across the continent? And I know you also handle a little bit of oil and gas, and maybe you can also tell us why uh, oil price is going up and gas price. Yes, so and maybe to start with oil and gas, I think for most of our markets, it's demand and supply are dynamics that are not really in the control of the economies that we sort of recover, at least. We're price takers from an oil perspective with very limited refining capacity on the continent. We are much more susceptible to any changes in, in crude prices due to supply disruptions or demand supply imbalances overall. The other aspect I think that stands out for petroleum prices or pump prices in Africa is really the taxes that are levied on, on these commodities. Demand is fairly consistent or growing. It's a low-hanging fruit from a fiscal perspective to maintain indirect taxes on petroleum products. Going into fintech or mobile money trends, I think the big game changer would be interoperability in most of the markets that we are looking at. I think the integration between not just mobile money and banking, but especially on the merchant side, uh, is this drive towards a digital economy. And a lot of these e-commerce service providers, it's really becoming much more important to integrate this within the payments uh, ecosystem. And I think interoperability is the value proposition to both the consumer and, and enterprise side of the mobile money ecosystem. That would be just one of the standout trends. The other, perhaps, that cuts across geographies is pricing of mobile money transactions, I think, will come under much more scrutiny going forward. We've talked about policy at length. I think the involvement of regulators in understanding pricing for various products will have some impact on how the providers price new innovative products and also competition. As we've said, as we move towards app-based fintech solutions, you really are opening up to much more both domestic and international competition 
And I think one aspect of the business where the competitive dynamics will be felt will be in the pricing of these products going forward. So I would summarize interoperability, integration, and pricing as some of the trends to watch out for from an economic perspective for mobile money ecosystems. And in terms of challenges for bank, could you maybe explain a little bit what a neobank is? And what are some of the players on the continent that maybe are rattling uh, banks in the traditional sense of just providing credit and doing risk assessment, risk management and all, and not doing much more than that? Sure. I think you've described a neobank in the sense it's a, it's a digital bank, lower costs and quicker distribution through purely digital platforms, automation of the credit, credit risk assessment, and sometimes lending off balance sheet, I think are the differentiating factors for neobanks from the traditional banks. But I think uh, Katakato might have more details in terms of um, specific examples that could be outside of Africa as well. Perfect. Uh, as we wind up the space, I, I would want to hear uh, a bit more about how can someone maybe prepare their journey so they're able to work at EFG. At the same time, maybe you can tell us what are some of the benefits of working at uh, EFG as an institution? What makes it exciting enough for other people to make, perhaps consider joining EFG? This is quite easy for me. If you have a curious mind, I think part of the beauty of EFG is having exposure to various markets where you understand businesses from different perspectives, whether it's different stages in their evolution, the different triggers that make them successful in one geography and not the other, and then understanding what is actually a catalyst for a stock price as opposed to natural progression of a business or a sector. So part of the, the benefit of it is just exposure to a diverse range of markets, companies. You get to interact with executives doing innovative things, executives managing multinational corporations. Basically, every day you learn something new and you learn something that you can then interpret in a way that makes your investing capacity much more refined and improved um, over time. So for me, what I would sort of narrow it down to is that's an element of growth, whether it's professional, but also for your own personal development. If you want to go into different spaces or sectors in another stage of your life, I think the knowledge is one thing that stands out for me and the ability to share that basically across the world. The same question to Kato, but Kato wanted to add uh, a different dimension. Uh, something happened in Egypt yesterday it was concerning the central bank and the exchange rate. It's such a major event across the continent, so perhaps you can comment a bit about it and tell us why you love your job. Egypt, I've been in meetings this whole week, so I haven't seen much, but I did see a little. It has to do with the, the rising cost of wheat prices and the concerns of higher inflation levels. So the central bank had to respond to that by raising rates. And for my personal opinion, it looks like a very sensible decision. I don't know the exact particulars, but I'm sure my colleagues in, in do. I have been more focused here. In terms of why, why EFG, I think it's really about the culture. We're very proudly Africans, yet we have a global perspective. And we're challenging. We're trying to punch above our weight. And I like that. I like the challenge. I like working with a diverse group of people from Silla to our guys in Koyin in Nigeria, guys in London, Rona, Kadia. They're all very interesting, different. Shruti Patel, who's worked with me everywhere, Mwadi Kilonzo. We, we've got a great team, not just in Kenya, but around the world, 
where we're constantly working and pushing each other to be better. That's it. I think there's nothing else I'd want out of a job than that. And uh, I get it at EFG and I'm very happy to continue. Silha, I've been told there is an EFG app. Yeah, we've talked a lot of different subsectors within fintech. And so where we do participate is on, I would say, well, management kind of, but ideally breaking the accessibility barrier in terms of stock investments. And we've tried to do this through the EFG One app. So available um, to download a quick and easy process to open an account and be able to buy and sell stocks from your phone directly through our, our, our brokerage. And it's exciting in that there's a learning and execution aspect of stock investments. There's ability to save and grow your wealth um, through investing in companies long term. As these this evolves, then hopefully we can open up access to many more stocks across the different markets we cover in Africa. And so it's an exciting time. It's really about accessibility to a larger proportion of the population, trying to increase retail participation in the stock market where over the long term, you have an opportunity to generate wealth. So yeah, EFG1 is available for download and we would support users in terms of just understanding the markets and the stocks that you would like to invest in. How do we pronounce the second name of EFG? It's a quick, silly question. (laughs) Is there a story to the name, by the way? EFG is Egyptian Financial Group. Hermes is one of the investment banks we merged with over, over 20 years ago. Great. So in closing now, I wanted to uh, challenge you guys to maybe share a few of the resources that I've shaped you, maybe books, uh, which kind of books can you recommend and maybe some of the resources that you read every morning, where do you get some of the, the information that you have, uh, maybe open sources that someone can also quickly open up um, and read and maybe also where people can find some of your writings and content uh, yourselves. Perhaps you can start with Kato. Well, there's so many source points for information. If you're interested in investing, then try and get to access to Wall Street Journal, the FT, try and make sure you're reading the local business papers as well. Try and make sure you give yourself a mix of information. Never allow yourself to be uh, guided by one point of information. That's everybody has their bias. In terms of books, actually, I think books outside investing make you better investors. General knowledge books, like my favorite of all time is The Africans by David Lamb, for example. It's one of those things that just, Animal Farm, I already read it again the other day. That always helps you and keeps you more skeptical and helps you be a better writer. Uh, the, The finance books, I guess you learn on the job and you learned in school. But I find often think books that allow you to think out of the box are much more interesting. I hope that answers your question. Yes. Silha, same question. For books, okay. so generally I have a finance background from school, but some of the books that I found interesting from a capital markets perspective, a book called Money Masters. And it's quite old, but it took some of the early stage portfolio managers like T. Rowe Price and basically gives you a view of the different investment strategies that they sort of implemented and can sort of guide you in developing um, a strategy that suits your investment profile and uh, time horizon. From a trend perspective, because we were talking about you know fintechs and mobile money, there's a book called capitalism without capital, which sort of details the rise of the intangible economy. And for mobile money, these are 
asset light businesses with an opportunity to scale. So when thinking about the digital transition, I think I felt like that's a book that's quite helpful in understanding those type of, of business models as well. So now time for closing thoughts. So maybe I start with Domingo here, who's around, um, and then we can go to Silha and Kato. Thank you. I didn't expect this, but perhaps a few thoughts uh, from uh, the whole discussion. I think uh, one of the things that's made Kenya very, very bespoke, and I'll say this uh, from the fintech perspective, or rather just financial systems, is our great identity system. I think we've got more than 90% people ID'd. And I was just listening to a conversation with Patrick Jaroge where he was saying that perhaps we are going to have a digital divide and this will be uh, led by the divide of technology, who's got the technology and who's not. But I take it to be that identity is one of the things that's hindering a lot of other African countries from cutting up with where Kenya is. I mean, we have things like IPRS, which is connected to all the banks' uh, systems whereby you can verify someone's identity. That's one big thing that needs to be looked out for in the future. Next is data analytics. So for data, I mean, perhaps one of the places where fintechs are doing so much better than banks is analysis of data. And we've got so much information out there. And I mean, the fintechs, of course, are abusing it. But that's one of the areas whereby banks really need to catch up on. But lastly, also integration. And I think, uh, Silha, you mentioned this. And I think not integration from the perspective of switching or perhaps having interconnected money systems, but rather more integration with ecosystems. This is, uh, for example, if I'm able to uh, spend money uh, using my Mpesa, I'm able to do everything using my Mpesa, borrow money. I mean, they are the de facto switch currently in the country. And this means that switching companies and paying per transaction is on the deathbed. We need to move to value-added services, uh, which is things like if a middle-class person wants to buy a car, they'll be able very soon to get a loan from a fintech. And the small uh, micro-enterprises and uh, low-income people are already getting solar systems through MCOPA and uh, the likes. Uh, so rather than integration between the institutions, it's more with the ecosystems. How to enable people, for example, to even spend money or even get money online. So uh, if banks are not already uh, on this uh, trajectory, th that will be their shortfall. But lastly, I mean, exactly things like what EFG uh, are doing is, yeah, also facilitating investments and uh, things like, yeah, investing in uh, your future, investing in insurance, investing in education. That's where the bigger gamble is. I think banks should stop uh, really bickering on uh, these issues of transaction uh, fees and things like that. That ship already sailed. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. For me, in closing, it would just be to say that I think we're in a very exciting position, especially in Africa. And I'll just encourage all of us to, to invest in, in African enterprises. I think the evolution that we're going to in terms of digitization really knows no borders. So I think that's a huge opportunity for the businesses that are being created and that exist have an opportunity to scale across the continent. And I think that if we participate in that transition through capital flows, then we are a much more connected society in the long term with good opportunities for economic prospects as well. I just wanted to say the name is EFG. I know we were having a hard time getting it. We started on a wrong note. I want to make sure we get it right at the end. EFG Hermes, we're, we're number one stockbroker in the country. We're very proud of what we've been able to achieve here. We're very excited by having this opportunity to share 
with you our thoughts on mobile banking and the banking industry. And thank you for arranging such a good show. A very good understanding of banks and the mobile money ecosystem for Silha and Kato. Looking forward to having you again in the future to help us understand a bit more, especially Silha on the oil and gas. We know that that's a very major play given the issues in Russia. For the rest of the listeners, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the patience.